you would open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, if you're using those blue Bibles and pews, that is on page 981. But before we hear from God's word, let us ask for his help this morning. Oh Lord, we are reminded every day and in some days more than others of our constant need for you. Lord, as we come to the word this morning, there are many things that are tempting to distract us. Things in our lives, things weighing us down, things going on around us. We pray you'd help us set our hearts upon Christ, that we would see him more clearly today, and that you would help us press on that we might receive him in that day. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. Well, Philippians chapter 3, we picking up in verse 10. Paul has just got done talking about all of the things that he was trusting in and that he has set aside for the sake of Christ, saying, which is in all of this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word from the Lord. He asked this morning, what is goal of the Christian life? What is it that you hope following Jesus will get for you? Understand, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you recognize there is a cost to following Jesus in this life. So, what makes you continue on despite that cost? Maybe this is just what mom and dad want you to do. So you keep doing this to make them happy. Maybe you feel like, I feel like the good feeling of checking off my religious duty for the day. That, that makes me feel good. So I continue on in this journey. Maybe you enjoy the community that comes from being a part of God's people. Maybe you hope being a Christian means that you're going to have blessings in this life, that Jesus is going to help you get what you want. <laughs> or maybe you're just hoping to avoid judgment in the afterlife and all of the good things that come from heaven. While many of these things are 
true. They're, they're good secondary effects of being a Christian. Paul reminds us that the Christian's chief goal, our main pursuit above all else, the, the thing that we want more than anything else in the world, ought to be the resurrection from the dead. That, that is our chief pursuit as Christians. And not just the resurrection in and of itself, that you don't lay in the grave and rot away. But Paul says that he wants the resurrection because that is where he will get to be with his Savior. It is in the resurrection that he will get to meet Christ face to face and dwell with him forever. In the last days, God is going to remake the heavens and the earth. He is going to replant the garden of Eden that we were exiled from. He's going to raise all of his people from their sleep. The heavenly temple of God will come back down to earth and God will dwell with man once again. And we will live forever with Jesus to love him, to enjoy his presence, to worship at his feet. That is what the Christian is living for. That is what the Christian hopes for. So at the outset of this passage, being reminded of that great hope, we have to wrestle with this question. Is Jesus what you want the most? If you died, go to heaven. You got every worldly blessing and provision that you could think of. All of the finest meals. You get a nice little house on the lake with a bass boat. You like that kind of thing. That anything you can think of. Heaven has all of it for you. But there's no Jesus. It's not a heaven that you would want. That sounds good to you. If you think, oh, all of the blessings, I'm not really missing out on a whole lot. If I get the whole world at my fingertips, you know, Jesus, that, that's not a terrible trade. If that's how you approach that question this morning, then let me help you maybe think that you have misunderstood who Jesus really is. Having everything without Jesus is having nothing. You can have the entire world at your fingertips, and without Jesus, you are missing out. He's not just some ancient guru or celebrity teacher. He's not some mysterious historical figure who maybe did some miracles or something a few thousand years ago. He's not simply the means by which we escape hell, and so we have to say our obligatory thank yous and acknowledge him. Jesus is very God of very God, the one by whom and for whom 
all things were made, the one who upholds the entire world by the power of his word. Every atom held together because he says so. He is the perfect lamb of God who was slain for our sins, that we might be forgiven. The Lamb of God who was slain and who was raised, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for his people, the one who sits on his throne as king over all the universe. You don't get a gift better than that. Anything you could dream up that this world would have to offer is not better than the gift of being with Christ. So to pursue any other goal is to pursue something that is far less glorious than what you were made for. You were made to know Jesus, to live in communion with him. You were made for one thing and one thing only, to know, to enjoy, and to worship your Savior. And yes, certainly in this life, we can know him, we can enjoy him, we can worship him. But in this life, it's just a glimpse. It's a small picture of what we will experience in the resurrection. As Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The Christian is on a lifelong pursuit of our resurrection hope. That is what we want most. And we must be on that pursuit through the means that God has given us. So as we come now to the main body of the sermon, I'm going to lay out the means that Paul has for us to pursue our resurrection goal. Let me just say, this is not an exhaustive list. There are other things that can be said for how the Christian ought to endure. 13 chapters of Hebrews that Neil just preached through. Nor is the way Paul describes his pursuit meant to be some simple formula, just go step by step and ta-da, you're, you're there. But nevertheless, it's not exhaustive, it's not a formula. In these verses, we do have insight into Paul's mindset and to the things that he pursues when he thinks about attaining the goal of the resurrection. We recognize that the Christian life is not one of passivity, where we just kind of let go and let God and magically will be transported to the end of our life. Happy Christians. It is one of striving. It is one of effort. And here Paul tells us what we ought to be striving for how we are to strain towards the goal of the resurrection. So we see first, one of the means that God has given us is that he has given us freedom in Christ. This is subtle, 
But Paul is actually playing on the things that he said in the previous verses about his old way of life when he was a Pharisee that you can find in verses 4 through 7. And, and look again at the way he talked about how he used to live. Remember all of the things in his old life that he could boast in. He had the right pedigree, the right form of circumcision. It says, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Then, verse 8 and following, and he says he's lost all of those things. He set all of those things aside for the sake of knowing Christ. He's let him go. He wasn't going to pursue a, a righteousness of his own any longer, but he was going to pursue a righteousness in Christ. And now in verse 12, he's continuing the same thought that he had in those verses. He freely admits, no, I'm, I'm not already perfect. Okay. Back in his old life, he was a Pharisee. Think under the law, I was, I was blameless. And now he recognizes, no, I'm far from that. So when Paul had a shallow understanding of God's holiness and of the demands that the law had on his life, he could look at himself and think, yeah, I've got it all together. He was able to convince himself that he possessed all of the righteousness that he needed to earn God's favor. And now he has the daily recognition that he has to rely entirely upon God's grace. Like who is more aware of their need for a physician, the healthy or the sick? Who's more aware of their need for grace, the self-righteous or the repentant? And for most days, it's, it's easy for me to feel self-sufficient, like I can conquer the world, I can do anything, roll up my sleeves and, and get stuff done. And as my wife can attest, all of that goes out the window when I'm sick, which you can probably tell I am finally getting over cold. When I'm sick, I just am miserable. I just schlep around the house with sort of a blanket as a shawl and box of tissues, just moaning. It's awful. This week, thinking about this passage, all that Paul has, and I'm laying in bed, just sweating, the fever's thinking, Lord, to die really wouldn't be gain right now. If you just like, would take me, I would be okay with that. I am useless when I have a cold. There's not one fiber within me that thinks, you know, I, I could survive on my own. And likewise, Paul, with the maturity of decades of following Christ, as he says in verse 15, with that maturity, he acknowledges his present imperfections. Lifelong pursuit of Jesus, he still is in daily need of his grace. Do you see this reversal that has taken place 
in his life. For a perfect Pharisee to an imperfect apostle. There's also a great reversal of Paul's zeal. If you wanted to measure how seriously he took his religious life in his former days, says, look at how hard I pursued the church. I was a persecutor. I, I was arresting Christians left and right, throwing them in prison, putting them to death. That's how seriously I took following God. And now, the same word that he used to describe his zeal, he uses twice to proclaim that he is pressing on towards Christ. Following Jesus is not a light pursuit. It's not something that we just wake up one day and think, yep, I'm just going to stroll through my day and I'm going to get to the end of it being more holy and more satisfied in him. Pursuing Christ ought to look like the same tenacious zeal with which Paul pursued the Christians while he was a Pharisee. And too often, we treat our faith as something of second, third, fourth importance. Just think, you know, if I have time, then I'll make it a part of my day. If I feel like it today, then I'll read my Bible. You know, if the football games ended early enough on Saturday night, then I could get up for church on Sunday. Now, how often do we go an entire day, an entire week, maybe even a month, couldn't care less about things of the Lord, couldn't make time to spend with Him? How many times do we make major life decisions without so much as a single prayer asking for God's input? Paul makes it crystal clear that our pursuit of Christ must be one of zeal, to be one of action, if we are to reach our goal of the resurrection. And yes, our zeal will ebb and flow, and there are many reasons for that. But even though it ebbs and flows, we cannot be content with the low tides of our faith. Think that we can just survive by giving Jesus the bare minimum of our lives and that we're going to reach our goal. That is putting ourselves in great danger. We need to fight the fight of faith to rekindle our joy in him so that we continue to press on. I'll describe more of that fight in our last section. But as we think about this reversal that Paul has had, it reminds us of the good news that just as Paul was freed from his old self, Jesus too frees us from our old selves. 
Paul is as self-righteous as they come. He was opposing Christ anywhere he could. He was zealous against him. And not only does Jesus save him in spite of these sins, saves him while Paul is at his worst. Jesus also frees him from these sins. He, he reshapes him and remakes him to be able to serve the church with the same ambition that he previously opposed it with. So whatever baggage you came here today with, whatever burdens you're carrying on your back, whatever sins loom large in your life, you have to know that Jesus has the power to remove them and to remake you back into his image as well. The same work that he did in the life of Paul, he can do and is doing in yours. It's a great reversal. You have freedom from your old self in Christ. The second means by which we obtain our goal so we forget the past. Here, Paul takes on the imagery of a runner who is straining ahead towards the finish line. And the one thing that this runner cannot do is turn around and look over his shoulder at the course that he's already run. He has to continue looking ahead. I'm going to destroy the metaphor but there are two pitfalls that lay in our past that we want to avoid running into. I get you thinking, how do you run into something behind you? Just roll with it. There's two pitfalls we want to avoid. First, we don't look back at our past sins. And even if you're thinking, I don't have to look very far behind me to see my past Sin. That's more of like a glance out my peripheral vision. I can still see it right there. Even though you feel that weight, even if your sins may be more recent than you would care to admit, the Christian must walk by the grace of the gospel. What is Satan's role? One of the ways he's described is as an accuser, standing before the throne of God, accusing the brothers day and night, telling us lies, accusing us. You're not good enough. Look at all that you've done wrong. God won't accept you. God won't love you. And even if he can get every one of those accusations to stick, even if every one of them is accurate and he can convict you on them. You have trusted in Christ. The sentence has already been paid. There is no longer any sin for which Satan can accuse you and for which God has not already forgiven and pardoned and wiped away. Think of what we just sang earlier. No fate I dread, 
I know I am forgiven. The future, sure. The price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. He was raised to overthrow the grave. Do you believe that that is true for you? Do you believe that, that if God doesn't keep a record of your laws, then what good does it do for you to wallow in them yourself? They have all been removed. They have all been forgiven. There is no longer any need to continue to make yourself pay for those past sins. All that does is keep burden upon burden upon yourself. You're making yourself your own savior once again if you're the one who has to atone for your wrongdoings. Brother and sister, Christian, you are free. And what do free people do? They run. No longer any sin left to strangle and entangle and hold you down. You, you are free from all accusation and guilt to continue pressing on towards Christ. No need to look behind you to see if your sin is left to condemn you. Second pitfall that we can run into behind us is that we can look back at our past accomplishments our past achievements as evidence that we're still running the race well. Think, oh, remember that split at mile 15? That was great. I can slow down now. Think, as Paul sits in prison, he's awaiting a trial that will decide his life or his death. And he could look back at all of the other times he's been faithful, all of the churches that he's planted, all of the converts that he's made, all of the sermons that he's preached, all of the hardships that he's already faced, and be tempted to think to himself, you know what, maybe this one time, I don't have to be so bold and courageous. Maybe this one time, I, I can do some linguistic gymnastics and hedge the truth and, and maybe get out of this sticky situation. This one time I can shrink back from declaring the truth. But he doesn't do that. What does he tell the Philippians in chapter one as he sits in prison? He says that with full courage, now as always, his prayers that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He still has another test in front of him. And his aim is to be faithful one more time. And then if there's another test after that, it will be to be faithful one more time. There's no looking back at past faithfulness and thinking that was good enough. He, he has to keep pressing on through the next trial, seeking to be faithful once again. Past faithfulness does not promise future rewards. 
In order to receive the reward of Christ, you have to finish the race well. But it is all too tempting for us to look back in our lives and all of the good things that we have done and think, that was good enough. That time in college when I, I was really on fire then or went on that retreat and had that spiritual high and think, oh, those are the, the good old days. Wasn't I doing great things back then? And paying no attention to our hearts today. Or we think because you know, I prayed that prayer once with my parents, or I, I raised my hand at camp, then you know what? I'm, I'm good to go. I don't need to think about what it means to follow Christ now and live the rest of our lives in neutral, just going through the motions. As long as we can point back to that one time back then that we made that decision. If you are not looking forward, actively pursuing Christ, then you will be in danger of dropping out of the race. You will think there, there's no point to keep running. Or you think, oh, I ran real good back there, so what does it matter why I run now? No, we, we don't look to our past. We look ahead and we keep going, which brings us to our last point. We press on pursuing our future reward. Now, I already mentioned the zeal and, and the race imagery that Paul is used here. And you think, we've all seen at least clips of marathon runners kind of coming down that last home stretch or at the Olympics when they finally enter into Olympic Stadium to make that last lap around the track. They spent 26 agonizing miles just plodding along. And now that last little stretch, just keep putting one foot in front of the other, using every ounce of energy they have just to get to that line. Just got to finish the race. Toiling, struggling, straining ahead. And not just the people who win the race, even the people who come in last. The people that had to slow down and walk a mile or two because they just couldn't run the whole thing. They, they keep going. They keep straining ahead. Or even in your own life, your own marathon towards the finish. Even if you feel like you can't run the fastest splits, you're, you're not going to keep up with the Kenyans. Can you at least jog a little? Can you keep going just a little faster each mile? No? Can you at least walk towards the finish line? Nice brisk pace. One of those power walkers. Maybe just a slow stroll towards the end. Maybe you twisted your knee at mile 20 and you just got to hobble towards the end. Can, can you hobble towards the finish line? 
Maybe you feel like, I just, I can't move. I'm stuck. You at least collect your, your breath and, and look in the right direction where you need to go to reach your goal. Wherever you are at in the race, Paul is urging you, and I am urging you, do not quit. Do not drop out of the race. Keep going forward. Whatever pace you need to go, keep going forward. Strain ahead. Keep striving. I promise you, if you do, the reward will be worth it. That's Paul's whole point. Why he keeps doing what he's doing is he's looking ahead at what awaits him at the finish line. Now, as we close, I'm going to briefly mention five acts, and I promise briefly that you can do to, to strengthen yourself as you continue to run, as you keep looking ahead. And since I'm butchering metaphors left and right today, we say that these five acts are mostly all sides of the same coin. Coin five sides. That's crazy. But they're all interconnected with one another, and I call them acts of faith because when you do them, especially when it feels like the race is hard, oftentimes you're doing them in faith that they will produce what God promises they will produce. Trusting that the Spirit will work through them to help you run. You don't always see it right away, but you keep pressing on in them, trusting that God will use them to strengthen your faith. So five things you can do to keep pressing on. One, it's most important, attend corporate worship. Do not say this as a pastor who just wants butts and seats. This is not why I say that. Yes, it seems like there be ulterior motives, but the more and more read the scriptures and think about what is taking place on Sunday morning, the more I am convinced that there is nothing more important that you can do to sustain your faith than to attend Sunday worship with God's people. There's nothing more vital to the health of the Christian. Think right now, we are sitting together as one people in the very presence of God. And by his spirit, through his word being preached, through it being prayed, through it being sung, our hearts are being strengthened by his grace. Every Sunday, we get to gather with God's people and be reminded of his faithfulness in the lives of all of our brothers and sisters. We get to gather with them and, and worship the God of the universe. We get to feast upon him at the table. We get to see his promises held out to us in the sacrament of baptism. Nowhere else in any regular part of our lives do we get anything close to all of these blessings at the same time. So as the writer of Hebrews says, do not let us forsake 
meeting together. Do not miss out on these rich means of grace together with God's people. You want to keep running? You keep coming each week to feast upon the grace of our Lord. Second, we meditate on God's word. You notice I didn't just say we read God's word. There is a difference. And I, I'm just as guilty some days of treating God's word as just the, the checklist that I've just got to get done. Especially sometimes if you ever do a, a Bible reading plan, it really does become a checklist. I mean, I just got to plow through material. But, but it's better than nothing, but that's not the way we approach God's word. There's a difference between reading the Bible and just gaining some information and sitting and meditating on it, reflecting on it, letting it stir our affections for Christ. Even if you don't have time for a full-blown, hour-long Bible study every morning, don't let that be a means to keep you away from God's Word. Something as simple as breakfast in the morning, open the Bible, read a passage, ask two questions. What does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about myself? Spend some time reflecting upon his word. Start 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day. Wherever it is, breakfast, lunch, first thing in the morning, before you go to bed at night, time in the word, your phone is off, we can tell the kids, just 10 minutes of quiet, please. Moms, you have my permission. Let your kids watch like two episodes of Bluey while you read your Bible. They're going to get a good, positive message. You're going to get God's word. It's going to be great for both of you. But 15 minutes a day where you can just spend time hearing from God, letting him speak into your life. Nourish your soul. Meditate on God's word. Three, pray. Right? You hear that thing? Yeah, okay. It's prayer again. But, but think about that. This is where we spend our time communing with God as well. It's easy to turn prayer into something that, yeah, just quick fire off this prayer before meals, what I'm supposed to do, and before I go to bed. But first, let me just say don't overestimate those moments. They're only rote rituals if you make them rote rituals. You can spend time actually being thankful to God. It's time to, to slow yourself down and, and think of all of the good that he's provided. He doesn't have to provide you with another meal. He doesn't have to bring you to the end of another day. So make those times real, meaningful times of prayer. But beyond that, find other times in your day where you can just sit and meet with God, where you can express what's on your heart to Him. And guys, there, there's apps you can download. You can set reminders in your calendar. Uh, you can post-it notes all around your house reminding you to pray. But there's no reason that we need to be kept from our Father in prayer. Whatever it is that you need to do, find time just to speak to God. It's not some secret formula that you have to crack, and once you do, that God's going to give you everything that you want. Prayer is simply time to tell God what's on your heart. 
to worship him, to thank him, to confess your sins to him, seek his forgiveness, to bring your needs before him, and tell him what is going on in your life. It is no coincidence that those whose faith feels so distant are the same people who spend so little time in prayer. Think how many of your relationships with a spouse or a child or a friend wouldn't suffer if you spent the same amount of time talking to them as you did your Heavenly Father? They would all suffer. How much more your relationship with your goddess who in heaven, who is in heaven? Make time in your day to pray. Fourth, be with God's people. Yes, I already said Sunday morning, but even apart from that, be with God's people throughout the week as well. McNeil got some 40 odd sermons on Hebrews. So like a third of them touch on this subject. I'm not going to get into the theology of why community is important. But it's just, let me encourage us that we need somebody or some set of people in our lives who know us, who really know our hearts. Not people on Sunday morning who know your name and can smile and wave at you, but people who know the, the deepest things that you're dealing with, that can walk with you through those trials, what burdens you're bearing, and how they can help bear them with you. That, that is what God's people are for. So meet with God's people. Fellowship groups are a great place to start. Men's women's Bible studies are a great place to start. Just picking somebody at random, grabbing coffee, maybe not great, but somewhere, start there. Get a friend, get together, pray with one another, be vulnerable, be open, share your heart. If you want to continue on in the race, you need to partner with God's people to help push you on when it gets hard. Lastly, how do we keep enduring? We set our eyes on heaven. It's not just another vain platitude. We, we actually need to think about heaven. Think about our reward. Think about what it is we're actually hoping for. How glorious it's going to be to see God and to worship him. How awesome that the angels and the great multitude of God's people that no one can count will be. If you want to know if this race is worth it, just think about where the finish line is on a daily basis. Meditate on heaven. And on that last day, you will realize all of your efforts will surely be worth it. So here's my encouragement to us. These disciplines, these acts of faith can be hard sometimes. I, I get that. You're saying, like, I've been doing it, trying, not getting anywhere. There's one key phrase that I want us to remember, even in the hardest of days. 
Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul doesn't endure because he's so great. He doesn't strain ahead because he's got all the confidence in the world in himself and he's just humming along. He presses on because he knows the one who holds him. He knows the one who has already secured his salvation. He knows that he can keep working because God is still working in him. That he who began that good work will see it to completion. We never strive out of our own effort. We don't seek to earn our own reward. We always pursue Christ because he first pursued us and he holds us. He has made us his own so we can keep pressing on. And he promises never to forsake us. He doesn't say, yeah, I've made you my own, but if you really mess this up, buddy, I'm letting you go. We press on because he has made us his own. We are not saved by the measure of our faith. We're saved by the object of our faith, the one that we're trusting in. Which is good news, because if it were up to us, we'd have made a mess of this thing on day one. We'd have started running at the, at the start line and just tripped because our shoelaces were tied together. Praise God is not dependent upon us. We get to press on knowing that our Lord and Savior leads us every step of the way. He says he will not let our foot slip. So we have confidence and the resolve to keep running until we reach our goal of meeting Christ in the resurrection. What a day that will be. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks. We ask that you would strengthen our faith, that you would help us see with more clarity what awaits us. Though there are many who just feel tired, feel like they can't take another step. Like, why am I even doing this? Is this even worth it? What's so great about this Christianity? Lord, we pray that you would help all of us to look to the finish line and see our Savior. To know how amazing, how wonderful he will be. Oh, strengthen us, we pray. All in the name of our Savior. Amen.